Hello and welcome back to the Hyperthesis episode 63. Today, again, we have special guest um, Troy Allen to join us and to talk about some physics and engineering and lasers. Welcome, Troy. Thank you. Happy to be here. My name is Feely. I'm Patrick. And I'm Liam. And I'm Troy. So we are back, 63, just um, December rolls around, so starting snowing, everything's starting to get a little colder, a little more moist, which is kind of nice sometimes. But anyways, <laughs> today we have, um, I think we don't have that many engineering type coming along to, for our podcast, so it'd be, it'd be great to hear from you. But um, be before... We get to the main topic, topic, which is Troy. We're going to start with some intro topic. I think Liam prepared something on some laser thing that he heard of. Yes, but Feely, can you tell us a little bit about Troy first so that we have, a, or can Troy right. tell us? Uh, Feely, you, you should have had something yeah. prepared. I will judge you if you didn't prepare anything. Yeah, so, so Troy just actually just defended his PhD. So it'll be the very soon um, future doctor. Troy Allen. So Troy worked in um, Fraser's lab, uh, Fraser's group here at Queen's University, and he's been at Queen's for quite some time. <laughs> so he's did his master's here also, but he also had a background in engineering, and he moved into physics in PhD. So his work is on um, laser in additive manufacturing, something that uh, work in factories, for example, in manufacturing, manufacturing something like laser welding technology, and working on to not exactly when you think of engineers, like you know, work on the light or figure that part out. But his work is more fundamental. We're working on mechanism, the how to basically fit the laser into the system and how it works. How how should the laser work? Hopefully, I get something right. But <laughs> we'll hear from him in exactly what he does. So, all right. So awesome. So so therefore, my my intro topic is on lasers. So hopefully, um, Troy, you're the expert here. I'm, okay. <laughs> I I know a little bit about lasers, but I definitely do not focus my research on them. So, our friend and previous guest Dean Eaton um, sent a paper our way titled laser pulse compression by a density gradient plasma for exawatt to zetawatt lasers which was published in november this year in nature photonics journal um so this paper the scientists who published it are from the uk and south korea are proposing basically a new method of creating ultra powerful laser pulses so currently the most powerful lasers humanity can create they're about uh, 10 petawatts, according to this paper and this article I found that was with the paper. Uh, for some context, um, some varying degrees of context, uh, one petawatt is 10 to the power of 5 watts. Um, one horsepower is about 750 watts for the car and horse people out there. Uh, Patrick? 10 to the power of 15 watts, not just 5. Did I say? I thought I said 15. I heard 5. Oh, okay, sorry, I, I misspoke. 10 to the power of 15 watts. Yes, one petawatt is 10 to the power of 15 watts, not 10 to the power of 5. My bad. 
Um, another kind of example of power is the Niagara Falls hydroelectricity plants in Ontario slash New York. They generate about 4.9 times 10 to the power of 9 watts um, of power. So one petawatt is way more than that. Uh, just for some context, and the sun produces about 400,000 zeta watts, whereas zeta watt is about uh, 10 to the power of, well, um, 10 to the power of 26 watts. Did I get that right? I think I did. I, I'm doubting my notes now, but anyway, it's a lot of power. So a laser being able to pr produce 10 to the power of 15 watts it's already pretty impressive. That's already a good amount of power. Um, even though these high-intensity lasers are often um, over very small timescales, it's not like they're producing this high-intensity light for a long, long time. Um, they're usually very short timescales. Still impressive, though. So it's very interesting that there, people are proposing that you can e do even more. The standard way people produce these high-intensity laser pulses is called uh, chirped pulse amplification, which is something Dean knows a lot about. He's the one who sent this paper our way, um, and he knows a lot about it because his supervisor won a Nobel Prize for it, which we talked about before. Um, however, there's a limitation with this chirp pulse amplification, which I won't get into. So by being able to produce laser pulses beyond this limit, um, you could do you could do a lot of things. There's a bunch of different applications for it. Um, one of them being that you can probe fundamental physics. So as a theorist, that's the one I think of the most. I'm sure there's more useful real-world applications, but once you reach these higher intensities up to zeta watts, the power, the order of magnitude that the sun can produce. Um, you can actually begin asking fundamental questions about the nature of reality and quantum field theory and quantum gravity, which is something that we really struggle to deal with. So what does this paper actually talk about? I've just talked about what it could end up um, teaching us about. Um, the paper, they used computer simulations, the researchers, uh, to demonstrate that light can be compressed and increased um, even more by using this interesting type of plasma mirror. So this plasma mirror, as imagine that you're firing light into a plasma. Plasma is a bunch of ionized particles, and it scatters backwards. It kind of reflects off of it. Um, it turns out that if you have this gradient in density of the plasma, so as you go deeper into the plasma, it gets denser and denser. Um, the light going in, if you shine in white light, it reflects out different different color different wavelengths that make up this white light reflect out differently so you can imagine like a prism like you know the pink floyd uh L or the pink floyd cover photo they use all the time um it's a prism you shine white light in and it gets kind of separated into these different colors of the rainbow um what happens here is that they you fire in this high intensity laser pulse consisting of all these different colors and so certain ones reflect differently red reflects differently than blue it reflects differently than green and so on and as they reflect out, they kind of recombine into a really tight, high-intensity pulse. Wait, you mean, you mean refract or reflect? Reflect, yes. Okay. Isn't it refraction? Well, for, for a prism, when you shine light through it, that's refraction. But, sorry, maybe that was a bad example. Um, well, I thought because the, the, uh, the gradient in density, it's like when you explained um, 
the uh, an analog black hole, but but imagine a, a gradient in in speed, right? It's like so. It's yeah. just the the outer wavelength need to catch up, so it it intensify the well, amplitude. In the paper, they have this diagram of the light reflecting out, not just traveling through. And yeah, yeah, they do. No, because it's refracting, but it's making a full like one eighty. Yeah, it's that's called a reflection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not actually, I guess, in this case, bouncing off a surface. It's being yeah, refracted like consistently until it. Yeah, absorption mm, and re-emission. Okay, okay. Is that uh, what's the accurate? Well, I think we discussed about this before. What is yeah. the mechanism of refraction? Is it ab- absorption and re-emission, or is it some kind of you know just um changing the trajectory of yeah. the light? Okay, I guess the simple way to put this is that you fire light in um the like a, a a pulse of high intensity light consisting of all these different colors so it's like a white light pulse um it goes into this plasma it does a bunch of stuff and when it comes out it the colors have kind of came out differently such that when they recombine they're even tighter together and make a way more intense uh pulse of light so just talking about this in terms of refraction because i think this gr- uh, plasma with a density gradient is, I mean, the key factor of this. And thinking about it, thinking about this in terms of refraction, if you look at, for example, the Pink Floyd poster, where you have this white light going in and then these colors going out, it's kind of working in the reverse direction. So you have different colors going in, and because each wavelength of light that produces these colors is being refracted differently very slightly but enough that it creates a noticeable effect when you have this differing this gradient of density these wavelengths of light are behaving the same so they go in all separately and then they essentially make a u-turn and that's very dependent on how the gradient is composed uh, which is a whole experimental side which i'm sure they touched on in the paper but i just read kind of briefly through it and essentially it takes all those separate colors together and then they all exit that gradient essentially at the same time yeah okay the way i'm thinking of it is yeah exactly it's like this it's like a focusing mirror made out of plasma in some sense it takes all these different wavelengths of light they kind of go in they do whatever they do and they bounce out to focused such that you get a higher um, intensity so the current intensity I said that we can get um, is this 10 to the power of 15 watts. So this method, according to their simulations, um, you might be able to get 10 to the power of 18 to 10 to the power of 24 watts. If all goes well, I'm sure experimentally it's way more difficult than it was very difficult to achieve. But it seems like they can do it. They, they seem pretty confident. Yeah, I just, this is really interesting, and I wanted to clarify. It sounds like this. Uh, your friend is in the paper. Are they a student of Donna Strickland? So they're not. Yeah, they they didn't do the paper, but they like sent it to us right, and okay. said they saw. Yeah, they, exactly. They work for Donna Strickland. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. As soon so as they, I heard what the topic was, I'm like, well, that sounds like, you know, the Nobel Prize. So, is this new technique? They are. Are they already sending in a compressed pulse? that they've already compressed using the best method they can, and this just that compresses was, it further? That was my understanding, is that 
that's something I don't understand because I had the original picture that they're sending in like a compressed pulse, but it's consisting of different colors of light. So it's effectively like a, a white pulse of light. But, okay, so. But I don't know if that. Yeah. And then Patrick was saying that they sent them in separately. So I'm not quite sure exactly what happens. So um, any pulse that's very short in time uh, is very broad in frequency and broad in wavelength. And that's sort mm -hmm. of how chirp pulses work uh, is that they. They chirp out a pulse, and I'm not an expert on this. Uh, your friend would know better, but the you chirp out the pulse through like a long fiber, for example, so that it's now all the wavelengths are now arriving at very different times. And then um, using some technique, you later recombine them to as close to a single moment as you can so that all of that power comes out at one time. So my guess is, like you said, that this effect is, is focusing and I don't think it's that's not focusing in the sense of uh, a lens. I think yeah. it's taking it's focusing in 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 time. I think. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I guess that that's a way better way to put it than I did. Um, yeah, you have your energy time uncertainty relation. Makes sense. So so that is what it's doing. It's making this pulse really 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 short in time scale. So I guess normally you have like femtosecond high intensity laser pulses or femtoseconds. I didn't actually. Yeah see a, a time scale in this i didn't fully read the paper i kind of like skimmed through it a bit mm. um so patrick i don't know if you know the time scales that these i guess they're way higher energy so their time scales have to be even smaller than femtoseconds for sure i am just looking at the paper right now and it is so it is an input of a frequency chirp pulse laser which mm -hmm. in the in the case of they, this paper they refer to as a long laser pulse because, like you said, it compresses it in time. And that's a really good way to put that, is it compresses mm -hmm. this chirp pulse even more uh, in time. So it's a much, much higher peak power. Mm -hmm. But again, it lasts for a lot less time. Uh, I'm just looking through the paper right now for the time. I think the, the time is a good uh, thing to mention in, the, in, in, in this context of like, you know, what, 10 petawatts that only exists for whatever, one femtosecond. So 10 to the 15 watts in 10 to the minus uh, 12, minus 15 seconds, I think. Anyway, I think that's uh, a cool doing fact math. as well. Yeah. yeah doing, doing math on a recording is always a risk. <laughs> doing you're like, memorizing metric prefixes is always a risk. Yeah, you're way more likely to mess it up when you're under pressure. True. Well, there was this... Um, I was talking to someone on the fiber optics and when they send signal, I feel like this is almost the opposite or, or what they try to avoid. Because I think when you send a signal or in the fiber optics and you, if you have a constant frequency, because there's some impurities and, and such, um, it would stack up at some point in midway during the transmission and burn the, the fiber optics. And what they had to do is that crawl the frequency so like uh, modulate the frequency up and down to avoid that. Like, it's like a when we talk, I think we talked about congestion before, right? Like traffic jam. It's like a traffic jam, the, the, the ghost jam in fiber optics. And essentially what they had is kind of this focusing event, but you can avoid by sh um, changing the frequency and, and walk it. So in this case, it's almost the opposite. Way. They wanted to, to control it so, so it amplified them. Um, amplitude you are a hundred percent on the money because the exact analogy 
that the people in this paper use is a traffic jam, a traffic pileup. They say, imagine you have like a line of cars driving on a flat road and then they encounter a hill that goes up. All those cars will bunch up as they reach the hill. And they say that's kind of what's happening with this plasma mirror um, with the light, though. So you're right. It's kind of the opposite of what you said. Uh, so just reading the paper, they're taking picosecond pulses and then compressing them to a few femtoseconds that can um, get to something like 7.5 uh, is it exawatts or some, some very large number. Uh, and the one highlight of this is the efficiency, because as Feely said, components will burn out if you try and do this with using the classical methods, if you're trying to use fiber optics. Uh, and there is uh, a whole study on um, laser ablation, which is the essentially removal of material using lasers. Um, and, and so in this case, by using a plasma, you don't have to worry about any materials burning or frying or becoming optically opaque. Uh, because it's a plasma, it's already going to be quite hot and uh, the efficiency can exceed 99%, whereas there's a lot of power loss, especially in terms of heat and other uh, reflections or refractions within the materials that can cause power loss. So this is a very efficient and a lot more powerful because you can pump in a lot more power to begin with. Yeah. Um... And it's, uh, it sounds very clever because, I mean, the idea, the way to chirp a pulse is you just put it through something with an index other than one, and then different wavelengths will, be, will travel faster, slower than that. So the first way they did that, I think, was which is a very long fiber. And this, this plasma just sounds like a very extreme change of index. And what's the volume of it? I guess I'm curious how, yeah, if anyone knows. About 10 centimeters, they said. I mean, that's, that's crazy. I think it was kilometers of fiber they had to use in the first case, but now they can do the same thing, or better than yeah. the same thing with the I think Donna, of plasma. I think Donna Strickland had like a huge coil of fiber, right? Yeah. But that's not too bad, right? But the challenge for the plasma, how do you create, how you control to have the exact gradient of density of plasma? Yeah, that's, that's like, definitely yeah, a question. It's a... It's a simulation, right? So they can just, it's, it's easy to program a change in density <laughs> or, you know, but mm -hmm. it's really difficult to control plasma. And yeah, they I might, think, I think, I think they might be able to control it enough that they can get like an increase in power. But if you want the, like the maximum increase you can get, that's probably hard to control because you need probably a really specific density gradient. And you have to probably study a bunch of other things because maybe is it behaving like a fluid? Is is there turbulence in the plasma? How you deal with that stuff? I think the the fusion technology research had to deal a lot with plasma physics, which might help solve some of the problems that might arise when they, they try to make things practical. <laughs> well, so I think that's a a good um a good place to move on and go to the, our main topic today. I, unless I, I had have one, lasting comment. I did have one more interesting comment because I happened to see Donna Strickland a few years ago at Photonics West when she was doing her sort of world tour after winning the Nobel Prize. And she was talking about sort of where these high energy pulses are going to go. And this is the question you guys will, will like. But she talked about getting, in terms of these peak powers um, and these short pulses, um, and you gave a lot of energy comparisons for it. 
in her talk, she gave the comparison of uh, that we're eventually approaching the, I don't know what to call it, the binding energy of vacuum. And that mm-hmm. we're getting to the point where lasers can, I don't know, rip apart vacuum. Maybe you guys can answer that better. I thought that was really cool. I I know a good amount about that. Mm-hmm. It's, this it's this thing called the um, well, if I, I think what she's talking about is the Schwinger effect. So there's this thing where if you have a very large enough electromagnetic field, you can just spontaneously produce massive or massless particles. But like you could like produce electrons from the vacuum. Um, you just fire this laser with really high intensity in the vacuum of space, and you can start making like whatever particles you want as long as you got the right energy scale. You have the right energy, you're just creating pair production just purely just from that yeah. enough energy, right? Yeah, my research is about ha- Hawking radiation, which is a form of pair production. So the Schwinger effect is really closely created. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these like fundamental results of quantum field theory. Um, that we can't test. So there's this thing called the Casimir effect, which is related, but the Casimir effect we can actually experimentally detect with like two metal parallel plates, and you can you can measure something. But the Schwinger effect is another one, which is like it's an it, it's it'd be really nice if we can do an experiment that like does that and proves it because it's one of these key results of quantum field theory, which people just accept but we haven't actually been able to verify it for a very long time um and if if we do the experiment and something else happens then we know well quantum field theory is struggling mm. but cool yeah. all right looks like it's time to move on to troy and his life and his works all right troy so troy is actually one of the first people i met at queens um i was fortunate to moved into the the office where um, Fraser's group and I think Rob Noble's group were working, and I think there's some a couple of people from the at the RMC who got assigned there allegedly. <laughs> and yeah, it's been I learned a bunch of things about lasers. I saw their little lab. It was, it was interesting. <laughs> All right, Troy, why don't you tell us a little bit about um your research and maybe what you do? Sure. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned a bit at the beginning. Sort of the broad topic I work in is uh, laser welding and laser additive manufacturing. So basically using a laser to melt metal pieces together. Um, and to sort of give background on that and why that even exists and why it's important. I mean, everyone knows what welding is and everyone can picture uh, a person holding an arc torch, wearing a mask, sparks flying, and that's sort of everyone's picture of a welder. And you may be seeing them working on new apartment buildings, welding the steel struts together, or you can picture them on a factory floor building cars. Um, and I mean, that's sort of everyone's basic understanding. But And they've been around, welding has, has been around for you know more than a century. Um, in modern times, the amount of things we want welded keeps growing, and the amount of new things that need welding also they pop up every year but the amount of people getting into welding is sort of slow and that's sort of a general trend of, of skilled trades not getting good uh high intake and um just a general labor crisis across the world um and that sort of pushed this need for automated welding techniques 
Um, and lasers were well suited for that because you can attach them to a robot. You can focus them down to very small areas and they can very precisely apply heat to the pieces you want to melt. Um, and uh, that is the sort of lead up to what I do because um, the automated welding is already happening. Lasers are being used to do it um, in one part to replace and sort of try to ease the, the labor crisis and replace human workers on assembly lines. But also there's there's things like your phone probably has so many parts that were touched by lasers. The, the glass is probably cut by lasers. The body was probably or the frame is probably welded together. The battery is probably welded shut. Um, and those things, humans could have done that anyway. So there's applications that lasers are, are covering that um, couldn't have been done before. But uh, welding is complicated. Uh, melting metal is not as simple as um, maybe people expect or like to believe. It can go wrong. Um, and as it turns out, for any safety critical part, like a car or anything going up in a plane, certifying uh, those things and proving that they're safe and repeatable and um, not going to crack or fracture or break in the air or in your hand um, is difficult. So that's really a lot to, to start and I get more detail as you guys have questions. But that's sort of the, the field I find myself in. Yeah, like welding. I remember, was it 2015, Patrick? The head welder for NASA. I forget her name. Renee Horton. Yes. Hey, Renee she, Horton. Yeah. Yeah, she came. Yeah, Dr. H. She came to our university and gave a talk about like welding on NASA spaceships. And I just remember being like, oh, this is way more complicated than just some guy hanging from a rope like yeah. with, a, with a welder, right? And the the amount of like they had the, they were like electron I, I forget what kind of scans they were doing. They were doing like these crazy scans, like super zoomed in of the welds for like micro or I guess nano cracks or whatever. Like I I don't know the terminology, but I just remember it being way more complicated than I thought. And I guess that's kind of like the stuff you work on a little bit is well, not 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 NASA, but like oh, I wish. there's way more to welding than the ordinary person might think. Yeah, for sure. Well, it is a entire craft, right? Like I think I was watching something on welding patterns. Like good welder has their own unique way of of welding. So that everything is like nice and tight. There's no seal, no cracks, and and it's it's a learned skill. Mm -hmm. But I sometimes I wonder, like, well, aren't it supposed to be like the best way we can just program it to do? I even have problem with like welding in the first place because let's say you work with wood, you would never you don't weld wood, right? Like, but somehow metal oh. is a welding is a is a method of choice. Uh, Troy, you know why welding is, is such a good thing? Why don't people manufacture things? So let's say it, it clicks in like wood. I mean, that so many amazing points you brought in there that lead directly into what I would normally use as my intro for my talks. Um, so, I mean, okay, the first thing, the comparison to wood, I mean, how you join wood is with screws or nails, right? And that basically exists for metals in the form of riveting. Um, and that riveting was, and still is used in some cases, but it was the predominant way to join metal sheets to make a large whole part, like, I mean, a part, a ship, for example, 
uh, back in World War II were originally and still at that time made uh, by riveting sheets together. And the story I like to tell um, in World War II, American cargo ships were sinking faster than they could replace them. And they were all be made with rivets. So they made a new design that used the, I mean, welding already existed since the 1900s early on, but it wasn't sort of a large scale technique yet. But they made a new ship design that decided they was going to use entirely welded hulls because it was much faster than riveting. So that's one reason to use welding in the first place. Um, so they trained a bunch of people to weld. They built these ships incredibly fast. I think a ship that would take a half a year to build, it got down to like a month. Um, and they built 3,000 ships to the same design in four years, which I think to this day is still the most uh, of a single design of a ship ever built. Anyway, um, half of them had terrible cracks. I think a dozen actually just broke in half completely. And this was sort of called the largest welding experiment ever done. And they learned that when you take these ships that you build um, in, in port and then put them in the Atlantic, the temperature changes, uh, the steel becomes brittle, and it'll crack, which would happen for a riveted hull anyway. But on riveted hulls, the sheets aren't fused together, so a crack can only propagate as far as its, its sheet, and it'll stop. When everything's welded together, the cracks can propagate forever. Um, anyway, a lot of lessons were learned. They, they found that untrained welders will leave cracks in welds, um, which then propagate. Uh, they learned about, a lot about fracture mechanics. And then, as you also mentioned, Feely, humans are very easy to train and they're very good at learning. So in the decades since World War II, when welding you know, first got introduced like that, welding has become a skilled trade. Humans are very good at it. A skilled welder um, can tell a weld is bad by the sound of it. And that's not just like a, like a fisherman's tail. Like the melt, as it's being scanned along, will be oscillating at audible frequencies. So you really can hear when a weld is going good or bad. Um, and there's, they, they're so trained that, but just by their hand, they can feel when a, a weld is, is going uh, well. And now there's robots coming into the workforce to sort of take over some of these jobs or do the same sort of job in a, on a smaller scale for electronics or, or small devices. And they don't have the... Um, sensory motor abilities to hear or see what's going on and then immediately apply feedback and then change what they're doing or know that a well is good or bad. Um, and we have to do all of that for the robots, um, which is very time consuming. And they don't learn as fast as humans do. So that's a problem. And that's sort of, we're getting closer to what I do is that uh, these robots are really hard to train and I'm trying to make it easier for them. So, so it's not about the actual laser technology where, you know, um, because I, I guess for welding, you have to use like continuous laser instead of a short pulses that we discussed in intro top. Yeah, because mostly, yeah. Then, yeah, because you can melt metal by shooting, you know, small pulses. Well, well, technically you probably can, but, take longer. but <laughs> yeah, it just takes longer rather than, you know, you want to melt something or like, imagine, um, What's the analogy here, right? Like people can probably make a like like an oven gun where you just shoot a pulse of heat, try to cook your pie, but it's better to just put it in the oven that constantly turns on. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's uh yeah. So 
So in terms of the um, laser technology itself, it's already made, right? Yeah, like, another so you... great point. Um, and this sort of coincides with, so there was a need to start automated welding and the, like the, the welder shortage has been going on for decades. Um, so lasers weren't really suited or there weren't lasers that were good at laser welding that were also affordable for a long time. Um, sort of gas lasers like CO2 Continuous wave CO2 lasers were sort of popular for a while because they could give you like kilowatts of continuous wave power around um, like 10 microns wavelength. But uh, around the early 2000s, I think, is when fiber lasers became um, started to become available on the market that were affordable, that could give you kilowatts of power. Um, and fiber lasers, you can what, just... What do you mean by uh, fiber laser? So, okay, maybe I should go... How much background on lasers do you want? <laughs> uh, basically, <laughs> there's, a, there's a gain medium, um, a cavity, and then you get light out of that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I won't go into too much background, but basically, in a fiber laser, your cavity is a fiber, and you uh, usually dope that fiber with some sort of uh, material that you can then pump electrically and then that excites um, atoms and then once you pump uh, into the cavity you'll get spontaneous emission combined with stimulated emission and then stimulated emission within the cavity will give more stimulated emission within the cavity and so on and so on you get gain and then uh so yeah a fiber laser it's is like a the laser that's LED laser Right, it's like the because this like LED laser, but that they're using like the semiconductor as a medium. But in yes. this case, use the fiber. Yeah. When you say fiber, it's like a the, like a fiber crystal or like. Yeah. So the materials will vary, but yeah, solid state lasers like LED lasers, they're also very similar, and they sort of all came around at the same time, and it's the same principle. Um, the nice thing about fiber lasers is that the output is the end of the fiber, so it's like a light hose. You can just attach that to your robot. Um, very easily, and then it can weld. Um, but yeah, these became available, um, and there was they were inexpensive, affordable, and, and good at what, and had stable outputs. Um, yeah, so it's not the pulse lasers you're talking about. Um, it's not high peak power; it's high average power. But uh, yeah, so those are the lasers that became available and sort of enabled laser welding to take off. And it sort of took took off faster than it we're understanding. Um, so where do you come in 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 this uh, scheme? Right. So um, the traditional way to train um, welders, robot welders included, is you have them perform a weld, and you take that part, you cut it open, and then see what was done. What was the what does the fusion zone look like? What is the microstructure of those grains? Um, you can do pull tests, see how strong it is, stuff like that. Uh, that's time consuming. It also destroys your part. So in terms of quality assurance, um, you can't break open every weld you put into a car. You know, you have to, there, there has to be some statistics applied to that. Um, and historically, there hasn't been a lot of research done on, you know, not what's go, what, not what happened after the fact, not what's look like after it's done, we cut it open. But what's actually happening while the laser's on, um, while it's melting, and what, what's going on there? So my research has been on uh, 
optical techniques to probe um, what's going on while the laser is actually doing the melting. So what kinds of processes are happening? Like it, it's clearly more than just metal melting metal and then forming one metallic object. So what kinds of things are going on that you're trying to measure? And I guess, how exactly do you measure them? Because welding, from what I've experienced, is quite quick and it's also very hot and yes. bright and hard to <laughs> look at. Yes, all those things. So um, it's very uh, bright. So your lasers is kilowatts. So if you're trying to do any optical imaging of it, you have to contend with the you know, kilowatt of laser light that is hitting and reflecting off of your metal. Metals are quite reflective. Um, when I'm talking about fiber lasers, we're dealing with uh, light at about one micron wavelength. Um, so, and I think like steel, for example, reflects about 60% of that right off the bat. Um, but, you know, with conduction, it, or I guess it's radiation, but it, it's still going to heat up enough that it's eventually going to melt. And for steel, that happens at around 1800 Kelvin. Um, and that is going to conduct through the parts, melt everything around it, eventually reach some equilibrium as it conducts through the parts, stuff like that. So that kind of, and that you can weld in that mode where you just conduct, you just melt, and then you just keep scanning and that's fine. That doesn't give very deep weld joints though. So if you crank up the intensity to the point where um, you reach the boiling temperature. So now that liquid steel that is sooner, still being hit by your laser now reaches boiling temperature. Um, if you can picture when you're boiling water uh, in your pot and you watch it start to boil, the vapor forms at the bottom of your pot, it expands and then floats to the top. If you could try to imagine that happening, on the surface if you were somehow heating the water on top um that vapor would expand right there at the point where the laser's hitting so it's not going to bubble to the surface it's already at the surface gravity is already or it's not gravity buoyancy is keeping it where it is um but it's going to expand in all directions and it's going to push down on the melted metal that you have there now once you push down you've created a cavity and now the laser beam can reflect. And when I said it reflects once and, and um, reflects 60% away, if you push your cavity down enough, you can now reflect twice. So now you absorb 40% reflected again, absorb 40% of that. And now you've gone, for, I guess, up to 60% absorption. And then now you're absorbing more, you're vaporizing more, you're pushing down more, your cavity's deeper. You can now reflect three times, um, and so on and so on. So there's this sort of runaway effect. Once you start vaporizing the metal, you get this cavity. Your laser can reflect more times. You absorb more energy, which pushes the cavity deeper, and so on. So now in this area, you have a cavity. It has it's surrounded. Its walls are made of molten steel near boiling temperature. Behind that is more molten steel, and eventually that goes away until you reach solid steel again. And that all takes place at the tiny spot of a laser beam, uh, or laser beam spot size. So we're talking about hundreds of uh, micrometers. Um, it's usually moving, usually scanning it along somewhere. So there's movement there. Um, What's the time what scale of that? Time scale. 
Um, pretty pretty quick. Pretty quick, yeah. I'd say that all could happen in the first um, hundred, less than hundred microseconds during the laser on. I mean, that's slow to other time scales, but mm-hmm. yeah, hundred microseconds, hundred micrometers, sort of length scale, um, three thousand Kelvin, light interacting, bouncing around, and now that that cavity is open and it's sort of pushed metal melted metal up into the sides to create a cavity um you have that vapor pressure pushing it out but eventually you can't absorb any more you can only absorb up to like a hundred percent you know asymptotically you'll approach that as you couple more and more light into that cavity but the forces of, of gravity and surface tension that don't want that cavity to be there will keep growing exponentially actually not exponentially They'll keep growing anyway. I don't know if it's linear or exponential, maybe. Anyway, they'll grow. So at some point, you will push enough metal out that the cavity wants to collapse. And now your shape is sort of changing dynamically. And as your shape changes, the amount of energy you're absorbing changes. And where it's being absorbed changes. So that's also changing your shape. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's metals are very opaque. It's hard to see in there. That vapor depression, that cavity that is formed, is impossible to image inside of um, because it's highly absorbing. Um, yeah, and sort of the dynamics of that that vapor depression, sort of sometimes called or a keyhole, that leads to a lot of defects as well. So if that cavity collapses um, and you just keep scanning, you'll just have trapped vapor in your weld joint. It's called a void that weakens the weld. Um, as it's sort of sloshing and, and vibrating around, it can spit out metal. Um, so it can spatter molten metal onto the areas next to your joint. And if you're working on a sensitive piece of equipment, like a battery or a medical device, you don't want that. But also if you don't, if the cavity collapses entirely, now you're not welding as deep as you want it to. So it's a, it's kind of a mess to leave anything out. <laughs> When we see people well, it's not like they're dragging the thing along. It's, it's like a, almost like a pulse, right? It's, it's really, sh- well, when you look at a welding pattern sometimes, it looks like a bunch of circles. Yeah, so because, they, um, that, that could be a spot yeah. weld. And all of what I just said there still happens in a short spot weld. It depends on the, t- the time scale. I mean, I don't know exactly what your what application um, you would have seen there, but um, even on, on the scale of like milliseconds, like one millisecond weld, all of that can happen. Uh, depends so on with the all those challenges, do you do do you image the, the during the welding, or you just um, or like is it by through some clever filtering out the light you don't want? Like how do you actually get the get to, to know what's going on while you're welding? Yeah, so um, I use two techniques. One that was I mean I didn't invent either of them, but um, one was invented by a former grad student um, of my research group. It's called inline coherent imaging. Uh, it's basically a Michelson interferometer where you have a, um, a light source uh, coupled into it. And then you have two arms, your, your reference mirror. So one arm just goes to a fixed reference mirror. The other arm it's fiber coupled coaxially, so in line with, that's where the inline comes from, with the laser that you are welding with. And that basically means that shiny piece of metal that you're welding becomes one of the mirrors of your interferometer. 
Um, and then when you when the light reflects off that reference mirror and reflects off of that that welding that you're doing, they'll be recombined um, into the interferometer and get uh, sent to a detector, and you can interfere metrically. Um, measure that path length difference and infer how deep you're welding. And that's especially useful for what I mentioned, those, those cavities that open up. Um, you can even measure to the bottom of those. It's sensitive enough to, to measure how deep those, those cavities go in real time. Another important feature of that technique is that it can measure a, a hundreds of kilohertz uh, imaging rate. So you can sort of capture uh, events on the five microsecond timescale. Oh, I, I never thought um, Mikasen, like uh, interferometer can be used this way. It is really interesting. Mm. They can be used for so many things, can't mm. they? Like a lot of the time, you have, if you have some problem, at least in like ultra cold physics, you just slap a Michelson inter interferometer down and see like, is there any way we can jerry-rig this into our setup to tell us something? How does... Well, this is... Yeah. This is so easier too because you already know one of the lights, right? The the one the interfering light is already your source, um, the one you work with. So you just need another one to interfere with it and, uh, and you know, try so, to capture it. Yes. So the source is being split between two arms. Yeah. The one that gets combined with the welding laser, it does not interact with the welding laser. It's a different wavelength entirely. Um, it's the re it's the known path length of the reference arm compared to the unknown path length of the welding arm. Uh, we're only measuring the difference between those two, but we know the reference arm is fixed. So then we're getting that the distance. And the interference only happens once they both recombine. So we're, uh, yeah, I don't mean to correct you in case you understood, but it was, we're, we're recombining, we're interfering the source light in both cases, in both cases. They just came from different arms. Yeah. So that tells you how deep it goes, mm -hmm. but I, I can imagine that there's all these extra things happening that might affect the path length, that might mess with your measurement, right? Yep, yep. Um, so like I mentioned... So I guess, I guess it's like a whole science to filter those out somehow. Yep. Um, and some things you can't uh, entirely filter out, but like I said... The cavity can collapse sometimes, and there can, it can spit out molten blobs of molten metal. And if those get in the way of your beam, your your imaging beam, you're not going to probe through that. So you'll you'll get a false shallow measurement because the the cavity either partially collapsed or there's some spatter in the way. Um, you got to be careful when you're doing it. Yeah, I mean you can't really be careful. You kind of just let it rip, <laughs> and then just this is what you get. <laughs> I mean, you can't. I yeah. mean, that's research. Yeah, I mean, we're not at this stage, at least in my way. I'm not trying to control the process. I'm just trying to image it and show people what's there, and let let the modelers deal with how to understand it and how to how to uh, tailor the process. Um, I, and that's sort of my my spirit of research. I like to just let it do its thing and just observe it. But I think this this is a good point to pivot into your life a little bit sure. because you know, well, so. What really got into you into um, this type of laser research or even more like um, manufacturing research? Because I, as I understand, you have a like an undergraduate degree in engineering and you kind of pivot into the physics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, can you tell us your story on that? Yeah. So my undergrad was in engineering physics. 
Um, and so engineering at, at Queens is a general first year where you, you don't declare your engineering type yet. Um, and you sort of do that, I think halfway through second semester, there's like seminars and events to try to woo people into certain um, categories, whatever, disciplines. Um, and I mean, the honest answer is, I think I was between maybe electrical engineering or engineering physics or maybe mechanical engineering. And I went to the, the event nights for that. And in mechanical and electrical, they were sort of showing you all the cool courses they work on and stuff like that. And like, oh, we're the most popular one. You should join us. And the EngFizz night was basically, um, this is the hardest engineering discipline. You should not take this discipline if, if you weren't good at physics. You, like, if, this, is, this is not for everyone. And I was like, if you're telling me it's the hardest one, I have to do the hardest one. Like, it was, it was a pride thing, which is not a good reason to go into physics. But I have to admit that it, once, once someone told me, like, oh, you shouldn't do this unless you're really ready or you're really sure, I was like, I'm definitely going to engineering physics now. Um, That's a respectable reason. Yeah, thank you. Put the pride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Liam, has, Liam has a similar story, right? Yeah. He said, like, you know, this thing is like he couldn't solve. So he was just yeah. like... I, I know that all these physicists yeah. always say like the learning, like doing, getting to the, the end results is the beautiful part, but I don't know, man. I just get really frustrated when there's like a problem and I want an answer and there's no answer and I can't figure it out. I just have to like pound away at it until I have an answer. Yeah. I like having answers. Yeah. <laughs> getting there is very fun, but I like the result as well. Mm. So that's got you into engineering physics. Can you tell I mean, for the audience uh, just uh, briefly, like what makes engineering physics different from engineering and physics? Oh, good question. Um, I guess at an organizational level, it, it it's a, an undergrad in basically half mechanical engineering courses and half pure physics courses. And so the physics courses I was taking, I, we were taking them alongside the physics majors. And then the engineering courses, I was taking them alongside all the mechanical engineers. And you can pick so which... So you learn like quantum mechanics and yeah, stuff. Or... Yeah. Uh, starting a second year, yeah, we start with whatever uh, relativity and quanta. And, and then you get into quantum mechanics in third year. Yeah, same, same time. Yeah, you guys probably which is third. not usually engineering courses. No, no. And then there's also... Um, difficult math courses in third year as well um and second year uh, yeah you also take the math courses alongside the physics students that's also a difference um but you also get the sort of group project aspect of engineering courses which are you know struggles but i think good for personal and professional development they're um, uh character development yeah, yeah yeah they build character that's that's I mean, the one thing they do I, uh, engineers sure. uh, we have to work you have to work in a team right so yeah. i think that's that's a uh, kind of helpful and also look so then you move into phd but in is it in engineering physics it is or in engineering in physics, physics yeah um so throughout the undergrad i mean it was a struggle which maybe shows that i maybe made the wrong decision uh, I got through it though, and sort of—I mean, it wasn't that, was that bad, but it was sort of courses were difficult. It was a struggle to really grasp things. It took a lot of studying, as as it always does. So the reputation was warranted. Yes, <laughs> when they said yeah, it was hard, right. it was um, hard. And then I, when I got to fourth year, 
I took a course in laser optics taught by my supervisor, my vegetable supervisor, James Fraser. And that was just a course that I just got. It's just like, oh, this is how laser works. This is the cavity, light, emission, gain, whatever. I just, I didn't have to study too hard for that course. And that just sort of told me, I think maybe I just have a knack for optics. Um, and then I pestered him over the semester to take me on as a grad student, and he agreed. And then six years went by, and I'm here. So, um, yeah, I guess the main question, how did I get into physics or optics or into grad school? It was just a, a fourth-year course that I just really enjoyed and didn't. it just came easier to me than all the math and stuff um, and other more pure physics topics. So, yeah. Well, we do things that we are good at, right? I think, and that is one thing that a lot of people found it out in high school when they were very young. Some people found out when they're forty years old, mm. and it is is um it's a different time of of more like a metamorphosis metamorphosis for everyone, right? You found this caterpillar, you found a way to work with your life, and here here you go. This is your career. So I want to delve deeper into the, the walk into the memory lane a little bit. So actually, what got in, you into like engineering in the first place? Was it started when you were really young, or was it more like uh, interest you had, like in let's say in middle school or high school? Was the science always your thing, or you know, science and math growing up were you? Was it the thing for you, or was it more like a later on thing? Um, yeah, I'd say it was pretty early on. Um, I was good at school. I liked math. I liked science. Um, so I think from a young age, I was thinking about, well, I'll be a scientist someday or a doctor someday, as any any second grader might might think. But um, I mean, when it came to choosing what to do for university, I feel like I could have picked anything. But when it came down to physics or engineering or a science, it was sort of a as an 18-year-old, I was making a, what I thought was a practical decision that engineering was a, um, a more financially prudent decision <laughs> to study. Um, you know, And whether that's true in reality, I don't know, but that was where my mind was at as an 18-year-old. And there were probably people telling me that in my family or around me. And that was sort of the, I don't know, you guys we've had similar feelings then or even now that that's what people say comparing physics or pure science to engineering but yeah i think it's i think it's a safer bet if like i feel like if you do really well in physics you're fine or even like any other science if you go into biology you go into chemistry if you're like top of your game you're fine yeah but if you go into engineering and you're just okay you're still probably fine yeah. you'll still get a good job you'll still you know change be, help society you'll still make a difference and get paid and have a job even if you're not like the top tier of your class or whatever. Yeah. Well, academic research is more unclear, right? Engineering, like people build stuff or, or create stuff. There's a product that people make. But in academia, the product is like the paper. This is abstract concepts. It's, it's, it's hard to quantify or even put value on what idea or theories are more valuable than the other. But sometimes clearly, well, you know, sometimes when you build a bigger bridge, maybe connecting larger people, it, it's just more obvious to what value is it contributes to society. And it's more immediate, too, in a lot of engineering fields. And actually, I'm going to pivot into 
uh, pivot into the future a bit. So now that you're completing your your hopefully um, final PhD or maybe well more PhDs. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations, <laughs> yeah, by the way, <laughs> Thank you. Doc, Dr. <laughs> Troy Allen. Congratulations. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's oh, yeah. we oh we but, can we um, can we can put that on our episode. We can say with Dr. Troy Allen now. Think you're I'm the first. You're, you're the first doctor we have on the podcast. I really? think actually. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Oh, wow. It's a great honor. Yeah. So, so we always ask this, or actually, I always ask this to, uh, to all our guests, and it's about hopes and dreams. And I think you're the one that's, I think, the furthest, furthest along the line. So, what I mean by that is like, so who do you self, who do you see yourself being? I'm not ta- talking about like 10 years, five years, no, no timeline. It's like, you know, would you like to be, let's say, a professional engineer working somewhere? in laser technology or do you want to move into more academically inclined a field who do you see yourself being yeah um so when i got into grad school and i was studying optics um, and those energy techniques interferometry whatever i happened to be looking at laser welding but what i really thought was valuable was the the optic optics experience and the imaging experience because that is so applicable to anything and it's also spectroscopy involved with the interferometer but i didn't get into that but anyway um and what i always wanted to do was to take those imaging principles that training and get into um uh space exploration space imaging something like that um and i'm very lucky that i've landed at a company that they do a very broad uh, application space uh, of spectroscopy, uh, spectroscopy um, that includes some space clients. So in some ways, I'm, yeah, I'm getting there. But I really, I just love optics. I love how versatile it is, and I, I just really hope I can take it and, and pivot into just some really cool stuff in the future. Looking, I don't know, on a rover or something would be my my dream to be the guy who built the camera or built the imaging system for for a rover on Mars. I don't know. I've heard yeah, some it's very transferable yeah. skills. Yeah. I've heard some of these rovers have lasers that they'll shoot at the rocks, and then they'll use spectroscopy to determine like what's in them. So, like, yeah, there's yeah. like immediate applications of lasers in space. Yeah. So, I, I, for a while, I mean, I'll be working where I where I am, where I can get work. Um, not that that sounds like I'm not in a good place. I like I love where I work already, but I, I feel like at some point, after a couple of years, I'll in a position where i can choose where i work hopefully and then i'll, I'll look for that but well i think this this um well what's it called uh the the application is very wide for optics because this because like um the information we have from most things in the world are from light right like that, that's at least in my opinion is <laughs> it, Especially more in space because it's really hard to get somewhere, and using light as a medium or as a tool is extremely important. And that's why I think like a, like your group is is very versatile in in terms of industry. And also, I kind of want you to comment on this too. I I feel like there's there's this um um a set of companies or industrial technology that's not accessible to let's say. Um, non-graduate um, students or let's say you have like a 
undergrad? Is, is there more like a place that usually hire a lot more PhD or master's students who work on like advanced tech or is it more like, um, like, is there a special place, let's say for PhD graduates mm. that usually take PhDs? Like geographically? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean like, uh, types of companies? do they exist? Um, yeah. Probably. I mean, I, I definitely looked for them when I was looking for jobs. Um, and I'd say my job search story isn't that helpful. Or, well, maybe it is, but yeah, I was trying to look for places that were hiring PhDs, but not undergrad engineers because, you know, I'm overqualified for that. But like, there's very few job postings that say PhD required in them. Um, so maybe that's where your question's coming from. But uh, I ended up getting a job from a friend that interviewed somewhere because she bought something from this company in the past. They remembered her, brought her in for an interview. She politely told them that she wasn't close to finishing, but she knew that I was, recommended me. I interviewed and then I got it. So it was, I didn't even know this company was hiring. I didn't even know they existed. Um, but uh, it's, it's who you know, which sounds dismissive, but it, it's literally your network. My, a, a friend of mine who is a former grad student in our group, uh, we kept in touch and that's just how it goes. So yeah, PhD jobs are probably more rare and you might have to hear of them from other people who are already working with a PhD or still in grad school. Um, but also so my advice for that is what kind of companies do you buy your tools from? Because if they service PhD level researchers, they probably have PhDs there too. So that's one option is to work at the people who supplied you over the years. Well, one thing about I find about PhD is that you learn to be an expert in a very specific thing, then you learn a lot of skills along the way, you know, mostly, at least for me, how to do research, how to do like computational physics and such. But, you know, what do you think uh, like a doctorate um, like offer to to industry? Like, is, or what's the difference, let's say, if I'm going to hire an uh, uh, undergrad engineer, trained in for four years, yeah. then um, a, a doctoral student? Yeah, I, I had a conversation about this with someone at work today actually and i mean it's a very simple way of describing it but like he was lamenting that his time of being a doer and a thinker are done because now he's a manager and he's just a decider and he said that i'm lucky because i get to be you know a doer and a thinker still and he contrasted that to an undergrad you hire a fresh engineer and they're mainly just doers they will you'll give them tasks to do and they'll do them over many years and gain experience. And eventually they have 10 years of experience of doing small projects along the way. The advantage you have as a PhD student, especially if you did the same project during your master's, is that you spent six years thinking about one problem or world building, like one specific skill. So you have that big picture um, idea and the ability to think about a project over that long time scale. And you were constantly the doer and the thinker and the decider. Uh, in, in some cases, you were all those things the entire time. You jump into a company and then they know that you already have those skills and they can trust you to work independently. They can hand you a problem and trust you to overthink it and come up with 10 possible solutions for them. Um, so I think that is something I found has helped me so far in the three months I've been working. Um, on top of that, you probably did presentations, you probably did the conferences, you probably wrote papers. 
it's also really valuable and you don't get that in undergrad. So I'd say that. Right. I think that's a wonderful way to look at the doctoral degree too, right? It's not just, you know, like, oh, we get this academic thing only. We learn a lot of skills along the way in terms of research. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that that's, no, that was great, Troy. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think we're going to kind of um, naturally move on. Sure. <laughs> Hopefully. So, yeah. So we have done quite a, like an hour or so now. So, well, I'll let Patrick tell everybody um, about how to contact us and such, where to find us, and hopefully a little story. Yeah. So if you are interested in reaching out to us, we, there are many different ways that you can use. We are on Instagram. You can find us at the hyperthesis. Uh, you can also find us through our email address. We are hyperthesispodcast at gmail.com. You can send us an email, a DM over Instagram, however you would like to, especially if you would like to be a guest on the show. We're always looking for experts in your area of science, and it doesn't matter the science. We've had guests at studying astronomy or uh, simulating oceans, or today we have Dr. Just, just to highlight that, Dr. Troy, um, who, who has been very gracious and coming on the show today to talk to us about how um, he's able to research with lasers and welding and using very interesting techniques. So if you would like to be a guest on the show, reach out to us through Instagram or email. And Troy, if people would like to reach out to you, do you have a preferred method? Uh, They can go through you because you can reach me, but I'm not on social media. Sounds good. So if you have questions for Troy, just send us an email or a direct message and we'll make sure that your question or comment gets passed on, provided it's a nice comment. Uh, you can also find us on YouTube. We are at the Hyperthesis Podcast. You can just search that in YouTube and we will appear. And you can also find us wherever you find your podcasts, whether it be Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, wherever you can find us, you can listen to us, you can share. And feel free to subscribe, to like, and leave a review or rating on our videos. All right. So today's story is also coming from Patrick. And so he's going to be telling us about the story of the Theodore Mayman Mayman and the laser. (laughs) I'm not sure how to pronounce that. (laughs) That's okay. So I'll, I'll make this story quite quick, but we've been talking this whole episode about lasers and about some other things as well, including welding. But I figured it might be cool to touch on the first laser and the man behind it. So many of us have used lasers in everyday life, whether it be entertaining cats to using them for research or welding or industry. They're everywhere in our life, but they have very modest and somewhat controversial origins. Now, the first laser, as Feely mentioned, was made by Theodore Maiman in 1960, and he was an experimental physicist who worked at the Hughes Research Lab. We'll get into that in just a minute, but first I just want to tell you a little bit about Theodore Maiman. So his story begins in Los Angeles, where he was born to his father, Abraham Abe Maiman, an electrical engineer and inventor, and his mother, Rose Abramson who was also an inventor. These two ignited young Theodore's curiosity, 
by involving him with experiments in their home electronics laboratory. And that's quite the influence to have where you have uh, an electrical engineer as a father and an inventor as a mother. So lots of good, positive, scientific influences there. Now, at a young age, Maiman's family moved to Denver, Colorado, and that's where Maiman continued to assist his father in their home experiment. Now, Maiman was a hyperactive kid uh, who said himself that he would be a perfect candidate for Ritalin, uh, and he most likely had a DHD based on descriptions of himself. However, it wasn't very commonly diagnosed at that time. Now, in his teens, he found ways to channel that energy and earn money by repairing electrical appliances and radios. And even by the age of 17, he was already employed as a junior engineer with the National Union Radio Company. Skipping forward a little bit, he served with the United States Navy at the end of World War II, and afterwards he pursued his higher education. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Engineering Physics, sounds familiar, uh, from the University of Colorado, Boulder. But that was just the beginning for Maiman, because he ventured into graduate studies at Stanford University, earning a Master of Science in Electrical Engineering and a PhD in Physics in 1955. Now, Maiman's doctoral thesis was conducted under the guidance of physicist Willis Lamb, and it focused on experimental physics. His work involved intricate microwave optical measurements of fine structural splittings in excited helium atoms. There's not nearly enough time to get into that, but not only did he do this experimental work, he also delved into theoretical aspects, and he designed laboratory instrumentation that was crucial for these experiments to happen. Now, it was during these years that Maiman's experiments began to lay the groundwork for what would become the laser. His exploration of the helium atoms and fine structural splittings became instrumental to his breakthrough that would eventually produce the laser. Now, fast forwarding to around the year 1960, Maiman was able to use um, a ruby crystal that, again, as we mentioned in the episode, through stimulated emission and uh, by pumping energy into it, was actually able to laze, which is to produce coherent light. And so this ruby crystal was coated in a silver, very reflective material, and this was the first laser. It's actually really neat to see a picture of it because it looks super futuristic, even though lasers nowadays, as Liam held up earlier, uh, are just like, can be little black boxes and, and handheld, whereas this was a little bit different. Now, Maiman's findings, uh, he wanted to publish right away and did so in physical review letters, and the response was actually unexpected. It was a rejection. Now, this rejection left Maiman undeterred um, and prompted him to turn to a slightly better publication, which is known for, as Nature, which we were discussing earlier in the episode. Now, this paper was eventually published on August 6th, 1960. Now, it's interesting that such a monumental item was rejected, uh, and there's a lot of speculation about why it was rejected, but there was apparently an overwhelming number of papers on Mazers, 
which are the longer wavelength predecessor of lasers. So lasers use visible light or close to visible light, whereas masers use microwaves. So there's a lot of controversy around that. And I mean, in terms of the physical review letters, that's quite the loss for them. But in 1960, the laser was invented and it's now just been used everywhere by pretty much everyone. You try and find me a person who has never used a laser before in any way, and I will be very impressed. Now, this is quite an important discovery, and Maiman's discovery has been listed as the top 20 or the top 5, and has made many different lists for the best invention in the world. And so, really, his mark has left a permanent imprint in the human race and all the technology that we use, from welding to playing with cats. His legacy truly continues to live on in any light that you see that's a little bit coherent. All right, thank you, Patrick, for the amazing story of the first laser. And thank you, Troy, for coming. And we will leave everyone here. I'll see you guys next week. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye. See ya.